Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweller since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings and welcome to the Games Master Academy. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and my dribbling lets me down. And giving it a bit of a squeeze, I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 28th of October 1993, and it's dual new number ones as Meatloaf does anything for love, but he won't do that at the top of the charts, and a new film tops the box office once upon a forest. From the creator of an American tale, meet the furlings. They're fun. They're funny. And they're full of mischief. Furlings! But their friend Michelle needs a magic potion. You only have two days' time. <gasps> Think we should take this? Now they're on their own and off on an incredible journey. Join Abigail, the leader. We can take care of ourselves, thank you. Edgar, the brave. I'm drowning! (laughs) Get up. (laughs) And Russell, the one with an enormous appetite. For adventure. Now, we talked just before recording and I was like, have you seen this film? Because I don't know why I thought if someone has seen this film, it might have been you because that <laughs> period of time animated films, because you were a few years younger than me. Yeah, I'd have been seven. You were the target audience for this film. And the fact you haven't seen it probably points out why this film just fucking tanked yeah it disappeared like this is probably the first time i've ever encountered this movie and amazingly for a feature film it is a hanna-barbera production at this point in time hanna-barbera did not make feature films hanna-barbera didn't make tv films but no this was a hanna-barbera production distributed by 20th century fox and based on the furling characters which is apparently just the term the story uses 
for animal children. The story concerns three of them who go on an expedition to cure a friend that has been poisoned by chemical fumes. Now, it's a bit of a fern gully. We've got a bit of an environmental message going on here, Luke. It was the style at the time. Well, it was a style that divided critics at the time of its release, along with the general story and the quality of the animation. Ah, so it really was a Hanna-Barbera production. It was a bomb at the box office. It had a budget of $13 million in 1993 money, and it grossed 6.6. The film had been in production hell for a while. It was originally conceived as a TV movie as far back as 1989, under the working title, The Endangered. It started to get a bigger budget, it started to get a broader release, and at the suggestion of the wife of the film's producer, Michael Crawford was chosen to play one of the lead characters of Cornelius. And further to that, there is a preacher bird in it called Phineas, and he has a choir of songbirds, and they chose members of a Baptist church in Los Angeles to be the choir. And to be honest... You would. Mm -hmm. Those sorts of churches, particularly in America, they can sing, but they filmed reference material of them singing, and apparently they got so into it that they were jumping around flapping their arms as birds <laughs> while singing, which I just love the method acting being applied by a bunch of choir members of a Baptist church. The co-founder of Hanna-Barbera, William Hanna, was exec producer on the film and described it as the finest feature production we've ever done. It's a bit of a low bar, to be honest. Well, yeah, I mean, I was just, I was curious because, you know, we were talking about like, where were they at Hanna-Barbera, sort of a production company? And the first thing I thought of was like, well, there was the Tom and Jerry movie that came out the year before, which I think was straight to video. My nan had a copy of uh, the Tom and Jerry movie. So I know those songs off by heart uh, because we're friends to the end, ain't we, my friend? <laughs> But the other one, like the previous to this, was the Jetsons movie in like the, uh, I think in 1990. And like, you kind of just sort of look back and it is just low bar after low bar after low bar, trying to sort of like reinvent their wheels. And none of it ever really worked. I mean, clearly it worked for William Hanna because he said that when he stood up to present it to the studio, there were tears in his eyes, Luke. There were tears in his wow. eyes. It was very much an international affair. There were animators used from all over the world. And perhaps it was the fact that they had such a mixture of animators that maybe caused some of the quality control issues because you had different people working with different styles. They were also working to a very tight budget and a very tight time limit. The film lost over 10 minutes of almost completed scenes, resulting in entire characters just being cut from wow. the film. Also, it was at this point and when Fox became involved that they changed the film's name from The Endangered to Once Upon a Forest because they were worried that the former title was too sensitive for a children's film. I, I get that. That makes sense, yeah. Basically, we're still guzzling down quarter pounders from polystyrene containers. Ixnay on the environmentanay. <laughs> it was promised as a new masterpiece from the creator of an American tale. The creating question was David Kirchner, who served as Tales' executive producer. And while he did create the characters and story for the film, many found the claim misleading. Yeah. Normally, when you talk about from the creators, you're talking about the people that actually write the damn story, or from the makers, you might be talking about a director, a Spielberg, or you just have the from executive producer. 
Steven Spielberg. Exactly, yeah. Like an American tale, like that. It that's Don Bluth. Like that's Don Bluth. That's Spielberg. I I'm a I'm a big big fan of David Kirshner, but I would not say that he is one of the creative forces. Funny enough, when I, I interviewed um, Stephen D'Souza about Street Fighter, and he would say that there are a lot of producers in Hollywood that will just say things in meetings or will like really drive forward something to get into a script. So he would just be like, I really think that character should wear a white hat. So that when the film comes out and the character wears a white hat, they can then say in future meetings, I was a creative force on that movie. Even though that's the one idea that they get in, they can pitch, hey, I was the creative force behind that movie. Or, you know, if in the third act of the movie, the protagonists fight a giant mechanical <laughs> spider. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, we briefly touched on Hanna-Barbera's cinematic past. The animation unit that made this film was actually created for this film and the Jetsons movie. Mm. It was brought together for this series of projects. And after these two movies were completed, it was then spun off into another wing of Turner Entertainment. And they would go on to produce films that I have heard of, The Pagemaster mm -hmm. and yeah, Cats yeah. Don't Dance. Pagemaster's not too far in our timeline either, because we get a couple of games out of that. I would argue it's a better movie because you know what? I've seen Pagemaster. Mm, yeah, I mean, my wife loves it. Like, she genuinely absolutely loves that movie. But, however, this would mark the end of Hanna-Barbera produced theatrical films. There would be no more, and anything that comes after this would be licensed. Yeah, because, I mean, basically after this, it's the Flintstones movie, which actually, again, is not far off in our timeline. And that's, you know, it's live action, uh, it's DreamWorks. It's not a Hanna-Barbera production. They have just licensed out those characters. When I was doing um, the, the sort of small amount of research that I did into this movie, which I, I have not seen, the name that did jump out to me was David Kirshner, I'll be honest with you. It was no one else, but I saw David Kirshner there and I was like, no way, because David Kirshner wasn't just a part of an American tale in an executive producer role. He's the creator of Chucky. He is the guy who created the animatronic of Chucky in all the Child's Play movies, which means he's got this very wild IMDb credits list because it is An American Tale, Little Nemo, Adventures in Slumberland, Cravendale High, Child's Play, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, the, the cartoon spin-off, Child's Play 2. Like, it's just like this, <laughs> this big disconnect in his work. Is he actually a Jekyll and Hyde type character? So when he drinks the potion, he goes off and makes another Chucky film. And then when the potion wears off to atone for his sins, he gives a shit like this. Well, yeah, I mean, and funny enough, he's going to be featured again in next week's movie because he's a producer on next week's new number one as well. But while that wraps it up for the environmentally endangered furlings, let's talk about that number one at the top of the charts because good God, this wasn't just a song. This was an event. Yeah, and it's here for a while. It's here for the next seven weeks at the top of the charts. That's like one week for every two minutes of the song. I mean, it's typical of Meatloaf, really, isn't it? Like I had, um, you know, this era in particular, I uh, I did a Halloween-themed quiz where one of my answers, I did, you know, the intros round, and I wanted to do uh, Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. And then you sort of, you get that song in and you look at it and you kind of like just clip out 10 seconds worth and you're like skip through skip through skip through skip through when do we get to the fireworks factory of this song and it's a little bit like that with uh with this as well having grown up and kind of meatloaf certainly being one of my early meat and potatoes of rock and heavier rock 
I could probably identify both Bat Out of Hell <laughs> and this song from the first three seconds of the track, irregardless of mm. if there's any actual music, because <laughs> Bat Out of Hell starts with a very simple couple of guitar chords. This thing starts with a guitar fucking a motorbike. Yeah. <laughs> It was originally released as a single in August 1993, the first single from his album, Bat Out of Hell 2, Back to the Well, sorry, Back Into Hell, and featured Meatloaf and a woman credited mainly as Mrs. Loud. Now, mm. as we've got this for six or seven weeks, I'm pacing myself, and the story of Mrs. Loud will be a separate entry. This is going to be a bit of an education for me, because... I have never listened to a Meatloaf album. I am not even sure if I've ever heard this song all the way through. Meatloaf is the sort of artist that I kind of, I, I'm, I, I lump into the same category as Guns N' Roses. I know tracks by them, but I've never listened to a whole album and sort of don't really have much of an inclination to do so. Like I, I can appreciate it for, you know, the, the sort of work that it is. I've genuinely never listened to an album. Well, you are definitely going to be in for a bit of an education over the next six to seven weeks. I am amazed you have not heard this song all the way through because, again, number one for seven weeks, it was everywhere, as was the music video. And the music video marks an under-consultation debut for Mr. Does, Michael yeah. Bam Crackalackaboom Bay. Oh, absolutely, it does. Bloody helicopters. Loves them. Helicopters, smoke, explosions, <laughs> fire, and improbable cleavage. It's amazing we didn't see Michael Bay's entire filmography laid out ahead of him <laughs> from this single music video. Oh, yeah. And this is the era. Uh, we are now getting into that era of the music video director and the music video director then getting their shot in Hollywood because we got a bunch of them. In the late 90s into the early 2000s, we get a bunch of music video guys who then get feature-length movies. Some of them do well. Michael Bay is one of them. He transitions into Hollywood. Some of them, eh, not quite so much. You're either a music guy or you're an advert guy that gets your shot. And not all of them, not all of them took the ball. I mean, love him or hate him, and a lot more people hate him, Michael Bay was wearing his CV on his shirt from day one, and it said, mm -hmm. helicopters, explosions, smoke, boobs. That was it. Sunsets. That's it, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you want a helicopter against the sunset? I've got five of them. I reckon they're in his rider. Anytime he signs on for a project, he needs a guaranteed sunset on standby with a helicopter, just for his own personal amusement. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this song sold bucket loads. It reached number one in 28 countries. It was certified platinum in the United States, was his only number one single on the Billboard Hot 100, topped the UK singles charts, and became our biggest selling single of 1993. Right in there at the end, it blew everything else away. And he's had some big competition this year as well. Particularly on the UK chart, because let's be honest, oh, we've yeah. got Take That out there. We're at the beginning of boy bands and dance and Britpop. There, there was a lot to compete with, but this, this thing just sold bucket loads. And I'll be honest, I probably owned it on at least two formats because I'd have had it on tape to start with. And then as I got a CD player, probably next year, like 94 to 95, when I got a boombox with a CD player in, mm. I'd have got Bat Out of Hell 2 on CD. So he'd have got his money out of me at least two, maybe three times. It also garnered him awards and he won a Grammy for Best Rock Vocal Performance Solo. 
Well, we've got no big games out this week, Ash. We've got some crackers coming up next week, though. Is there anything going on in the magazines? Well, we've got a couple of previews that caught my eye because there are two games here, one of which we've referenced multiple times and the other of which came up in an anecdote that you referenced on our bonus episode covering Nightmare. We have previews for Turtles Tournament Fighter for the SNES and Elf Mania for the Amiga. And Luke, what genre do you think Elf Mania is? So if, if you haven't heard our Patreon podcast that we did on Nightmare, thank you to everyone who has heard it. Um, there's a kid we, we found an interview with who was on Nightmare who was talking about how it was a long, arduous process to film because you would do a room that goes 90 seconds and then you exit that room and you have to wait a couple of hours for the next room to get set up. So you would basically just go back to the green room. They had an Amiga set up that had Elf Mania on it. Now, I presumed because it's on an Amiga, it's on the set of Nightmare, and it's got Elf in the title, that it would be a fantasy game. But the fact that you're asking me this question makes me think that it's not? It's a fighting game, Luke. Is it really? I am as surprised as you. And it's not exactly got a crowded marketplace because on the Amiga, good fighting games are few and far between. You've basically got Body Blows, Final Fight and Street Fighter 2, in addition to a plethora of Double Dragon scrolling beat-em-up type games. God, just looking at images of this now, and it is not what I was expecting. This is very much a what would happen if Europeans made a fighting game. And this is the answer. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. You, know, you know our friend Tom Watson mm-hmm. from Renegade? Oh yeah, Tom Watson from Renegade, yeah. Yeah, this is a Renegade game. And apparently is a non-violent beat-em-up. That was Clay Fighter's gimmick. <laughs> well, Games Master questions it here, saying, what do they use, harsh language, or maybe they just attack each other with overgrown flowers? Uh, bad breath, colourful language, feather duster, what do you think they're going to be armed with? Guns, you tit! But by non-violent, they just mean that the characters are cute and the whole thing is just amusingly bloodless. To which Games Master says, God damn it, we want blood, we want wanton violence, we want grossness. Still, it does look the business, the bee's knees and all of that. You get the picture, it's an all-round good game. The graphics are pretty damned impressive with multi-level parallax scrolling and lovely, lovely characters and backgrounds. And there are six levels and six fighters at the moment. And the programmers have been working hard to make all the various moves easier to access. A good idea on an Amiga where you've essentially got either a keyboard or two buttons and a joystick. And Games Master says that if we're lucky, we'll have a review of this stupendous fighting game in the next issue. Ooh, that might be worth checking in on in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, it will be, yeah. But meanwhile, up the top of the page, we've got a half-page preview of Tournament Fighter, where they're much kinder to the Turtles than Jais Rignall, saying these heroes <laughs> in half-shells are stomping onto the snares after a couple of nearly good adventures. Okay, f*** oh! them, they are still being miserable. Oh, shell shock. Turtles yeah, in yeah. Time was a good game. That and, and it's on the exact same episode, the, the Street Gangs thing, are the two reviews that, I mean, there's quite a few reviews where you're like, oh man, that game's like held in quite high regard now that you guys are just absolutely shatting upon at the time. Turtles in Time is, that might be one of the most surprising ones though. But they say that you can choose from 10 characters including the Turtles themselves, but sadly not April. Although originally, April was going to be one of the characters, but they just didn't. Yeah, yeah. Sana heads prevailed there because at that point in time, April O'Neil was not a fighter. She's not the cool April O'Neil that's in the 2012 reboot. She is Channel 6 News April O'Neil. 
yellow jumpsuit and screaming April O'Neil is what we're talking about here. We're not even getting the decent April O'Neil that was in the original Mirage comics because she was kind of a badass. Yeah. But they say there are fancy backgrounds and special moves galore as you fight your way through the scummiest scum that the scummy city of New York has to offer. Ah, so this is before Rudy cleaned it up then. And Mm. look what happened to him. (laughs) But they say from what we've seen, some of the characters here make the likes of Blanca seem perfectly normal. If four stupid Ninja Turtles... Mm. (laughs) Couldn't help themselves there, could they? Just could not help themselves. I don't like this magazine anymore, Luke. I'm not a fan. It was Dominic last week, and now they're taking in the turtles. It's it's not a good look. But if they weren't bizarre enough, there are strange-looking robots and kamikaze flying toady things. It's weird, bizarre, surreal, and probably a bloody good game as well. The turtles as a craze may be as dead as a duck and buried six feet under, but their games live on. A full review will be coming next issue. Ooh, so we could actually be covering next issue two reviews we haven't looked at a review in a magazine for a while, but I feel that both Elf Mania and Tournament Fighters are pertinent to our interests. Tournament Fighters in particular, absolutely, yeah. But again, like they, they, they write there the reason why they were so down on Turtles in Time and the reason why I'd imagine they're down on Tournament Fighters as well is because the fad is over and they don't want to be, you know, people saying, hey, they've got a good game though, because they're not cool anymore. But it will actually be interesting to see how Tournament Fighters stacks up against Renegade's Elf Mania, which really sounds more like a Lemmings-type game. You know, you're expecting like a cutesy puzzle thing. That's exactly the sort of thing I was expecting, yeah. Now, anyone who knows anything about video games will know that the shops are chock full of movie licenses. Well, tonight we feature a game that brings two movie legends together under one great title. Well, you'll have to stay tuned to see that. Well, it was reviewed a couple of weeks ago. It's now being teased as the final challenge for this show. We're going to see two of the great movie licenses under one title, but that is a Fireworks Factory you are going to have to wait for. Is it Ernest Borgnine versus Wilfred Brimley? Because I am so down for that as a Hollywood <laughs> showdown. Uh, slightly less bloody. Uh, but we've got a, ch- got a different kind of challenge up first, though. Uh, let's find out what we're playing from the Games Master. Well, the first game to tax our hopeful players tonight is Super Pang on the SNES. This game involves nothing more complex than popping balloons. When there are none left on the screen, your task is complete. Watch out, though, as every time you pop a balloon, you are left with two smaller ones until they are too small to divide anymore and simply disappear. The contestant who survives the longest shall be the winner. Sharpen your pins. This is an absolutely belting game, Super Pang on the Super Nintendo. I bloody loved this game and played so much of it in my university years. Absolutely adore Super Pang. Well, you know, Pang in general. Although strangely, Super Pang was the name we knew it as. Super Pang was the name it was known as in Japan. Super Pang is what it was known as everywhere except America where it became mm-hmm. Super Buster Brothers. I don't know why. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of I kind of understand it in a way, I suppose. You're trying to make it sound like Super Mario Brothers, really, and trying to, trying to attract people that way. Maybe it's just because of the nostalgia, but I love Super Pang because, you know what, Super Buster Brothers, we're back to what a game sounds like. It could be a platform Mario-type game. Mm-hmm. It could also be a beat-em-up. Yeah. It, it but, could you know, be misleading. Whereas Super Pang may not be as immediately attractive and it may not mean anything, but that also means 
it's not misleading. No, but true. But the Americans, as we know, and this is not like, you know, me dogging on Americans or anything like that. This is just the way that American marketing has treated you uh, as a nation is that they just sort of think you're a bit dumb and you've just got to have things spell out for you. So if, if your average Joe walks in and goes, Pang, what's that? No idea. Buster Brothers, that I get. Yeah, I suppose. Maybe there's also a licensing reason that I just don't have documented somewhere, but doesn't matter. Still a bloody good game. Second game in the Pang series as well. Mm-hmm. God damn, it's a fine old game. If you've never played it before, essentially what happens is there's big balls bouncing around and you shoot the balls and the balls split off into smaller versions of the balls and you've just then got to get rid of all the balls. But obviously it becomes quite chaotic because then there's lots of bouncing balls going around. Oh, it's brilliant. Great arcade fun. This, it's so much fun. But we have the curse of the SNES here again because we're playing the SNES version and would you, Adam and Eva, it's another two-player arcade game that only gets one player on the SNES. Absolutely baffling. How does that happen? For Final Fight, there were technical limitations. And I get that. I get that. That's fair enough. I can see how early in the Super Nintendo's development cycle, people might not be able to get a game with characters as big as those in Final Fight running on a two-player game. But Pang. Pretty simple. Okay, tonight we've got two players competing for the single place in our final. Please give a big hand for mother and son duo, no less, Paul and Sonia Pierce. Okay, good one. Paul, you're going to be playing your mum here for this challenge? Yeah. You going to give her any chances at all, do you think? A little bit. You're going to give her a little bit of a squeeze, all right then. What about you, mum? You played Super Pang before? Just a little bit. You played it a little bit, so you've got some idea of what's going on. We've got a mother and son duo playing this game, Paul and Sonia Pierce. Paul is a proper metalhead with his Guns N' Roses t-shirt that's five sizes too big for him, and I bloody love him. I tell you what, you may not have heard an entire Guns N' Roses album, but this is a really, really cool shirt. This shirt makes Guns N' Roses look way more metal than they actually are. It makes them look way more metal than any of their members apart from Slash. Yeah. Slash has always looked metal because the hat, the jacket, the jeans or leather trousers, the studded belt, even when all the others were doing the big hair, he may have had big hair, but also, to put it bluntly, He's fucking Slash. Yeah. He's called Slash. I mean, perhaps this is a controversial statement, but I fucking hate Guns N' Roses. I am, I am not a fan of them whatsoever. I tell you what, we've had some differences of opinion. In fact, I think over the past three, four weeks, we've had more differences of opinions than in the two seasons preceding it. You not liking Guns N' Roses is actually the one that has genuinely made me go, wow, I'm going to have to live with this now. <laughs> I think Welcome to the Jungle is a good song. I think that's pretty good. Sweet Child of Mine? I don't like it. And, it, and do you know what it is? It's Axel that puts me off. I, I am not a fan of Axel's vocals. I find them really grating, which is weird because I bloody love the Smashing Pumpkins. And when people tell me, oh yeah, but Billy Corgan's voice is well annoying. I'm like, yeah, no, I totally, and I hear what you're saying. I totally, and I hear it myself, but I quite like it. And I have the same with, um, with Primus, but... Yeah, there's something about Axl Rose's voice that is like, it's nails down a chalkboard for me and I I can't abide it. I've got a theory that I'm going to put to the test when we're off air. I'm going to send you a couple of Guns N' Roses songs, but the ones from Slash's solo tour where he has Miles Kennedy from Alter Bridge doing the vocals. And I want to know if you enjoy (laughs) the songs more with a less grating voice. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm more than happy to give it a go because, I, I mean, I very much enjoyed Slash's solo work. I thought that has been really, really strong. So yeah, I, I'm more than happy to give it a go. Also, I was in a band many, many years ago now 
and we supported Europe's uh, biggest Guns N' Roses tribute act. It was the biggest gig we ever did. It was one of the only gigs I actually got paid to do. So this was like a really big deal for us. But because they were a Guns N' Roses tribute act, it basically gave them free license to act like assholes. They weren't being assholes. They were just being in character. Oh, they went full method. Oh, and it was one of the worst experiences because the guy who was playing Axel was a proper twat. I've encountered a Queen tribute band that I briefly worked with uh, for an event. And I will say that the closer it got to stage time, the more in character at the very least, Freddy got. But Mm. I would say that is entirely understandable because if you're going on stage and being Freddy, you need to build up to that. I don't think that that is a persona you can just switch on. Yeah. That's something you've just got to work your way into. But they weren't dicks about it. They were just flamboyant. Yeah. Anyway, back to Pang. We liked Pang. (laughs) I don't know why we diverted so much on this one. It was the shock of the Guns N' Roses revelation. I, I, Yeah, I'm going to have to process this one for a bit anyway his mum's played the game a little bit she doesn't seem like she's particularly confident at playing the game and this is where my opening line came from because dex asks paul if he's gonna give her a few chances and he says he will which dex clarifies and says oh you're gonna give her a bit of a squeeze and i'm like hang on (laughs) yeah i I thought we left that kind of humor behind in the diamond era because even if you look at it in a non-filthy way which is really difficult sometimes Giving someone a bit of a squeeze feels more like you're pressuring them, not giving them room to actually have a chance at winning. Yeah, Dex is getting a bit more blue these days. I have noticed that in the last few episodes, he's been getting a lot more blue. Okay, joining me in the commentary box tonight is our old friend Steve Carsey. Hi, Dexter. How are you doing all right? Not too bad. Now, Superbank, it's a lot of balls really, isn't it? <laughs> not unlike yourself, Dexter. That's very kind of you, Steve. <laughs> Go on, what's some things to look out for in this challenge? Well, the best advice I can give Sonia is to be very choosy with which weapons she collects. Right. Uh, by far the most useful one is the machine gun. Right, the machine gun. Yep. Okay, so Sonia has to look out for the machine gun. She has to complete the level in the fastest time possible, or should she die, we're going to take the time that she's got remaining on the screen yeah yeah okay then and he's blue with Stephen Cassie as well because they're basically making jokes about it's just a load of balls in it and Cassie looks at him and goes not unlike yourself Dex I reckon he's getting more comfortable that's what I think it might be I think you know and I also wonder if it's the writing team are getting more comfortable with him because they don't want to just give him all of Dominic's usual dick joke material straight off the bat now they're working with him a little bit more they're more comfortable to approach him being like hey would you say this we think it's really funny things like giving her a bit of a squeeze or the interplay on it being a load of balls that doesn't feel scripted that just feels like riffing that feels like a Mm. reactionary thing i like that that tickled me both of those got a chuckle yeah well, this is to complete the board in the fastest time possible, or at the very least, survive. There's 80 seconds on the clock. Sonia is up first. And Sonia clearly has played the game before, most likely on the day, most likely in the green room before they went out to record this. But she is not a confident player on it. She just keeps just firing randomly. You know, they go like, hey, you know, maybe you can get the machine gun. And the machine gun never really appears. So she's just there, just propelling at the platforms, not really getting anywhere on this, then dies with 47 seconds left on the clock. My exact note, channeling Dominic, was she takes a couple of balls right to the face. <laughs> Very good. Dex is in flirty mode because he does refer to her as a lovely little thing. <laughs> 
He's being smooth Rachel Divers Dexter Fletcher on this episode. Isn't he just? Uh, Paul's way better at the game. Uh, of course he is. He wins it very quickly. He like completes the challenge in terms of he lasts longer than his mum does, but then just clears up the board just for the sake of pride and ends with 37 seconds left on the clock. It was excellent stuff, really. He was a tidy little player. He really knew that game well. And there's no guarantee that he would have played Pang a lot before the day of recording, but he picked it up damn well. Yeah, he really did. Although there's a very weird moment here, and I rewound this a couple of times. Dex says, excellent stuff there, but it sounds like he says, excrement stuff there. I think it's maybe the slight lisp and also the second generation VHS that we're working off of. I don't think he did it on purpose, at the very least. It really does sound like he says excrement there. For the winner and the loser. Mumsy, you didn't do very well, did you, unfortunately? No, no I didn't. Yeah, he didn't show you much mercy once he got on there as well. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm sure you'll get over it, won't you? I will. You will. Yeah. So, and you're the champion, eh? Yep. That means that you get a place in the final challenge tonight, later on, okay, when you will have a chance to win the fabulous Games Master Golden Joystick. Okay, so be prepared to come back for that for us, won't you? Okay, then. But yeah, Mumsy didn't do too well, but Paul... No, she did not. Paul is in with a chance to win the Golden Games Master Joystick later on. Now... I'm with you on this one. This is the week where I started to go, man, I kind of miss the multi-person finales. Yeah. Yeah, I miss it a little bit. Spoilers, we get it again next week as well. But next week's, I actually think, because it starts as a three-person challenge and then goes down to one, and it is a really fast final challenge, I think it works next week because they got the challenges right. Even if one of those challenges is bollocks. (laughs) yeah a little bit but we'll get to that we will indeed my note here is uh paul seems as happy as a metal teenager in the early 90s can be i mean at that point of time guns and roses were on the way out we had meatloaf at the top of the charts and bruce dickinson was leaving iron maiden it was a weird time to be a metal fan i don't like iron maiden either for the record if not for the fact i'm lazy (laughs) i would have actually gotten up and walked out at that point because holy (laughs) shit (laughs) just gonna pepper these in throughout just basically destroying the image of you that I have as being a pretty cool dude <laughs> and you don't like Guns N' Roses, you don't care for Iron Maiden. I've seen them live a couple of times as well. You don't care for Iron Maiden, but you've seen them live, you motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> it was at it <laughs> Reading Festival, like you're there. You're like, you're like, oh, I may as well watch them while I'm here. You're going to spite watch them. <laughs> They're honestly on my bucket list, like a band that I want to see live because I've seen a lot of the other big bands that I want to see. I would like to see them live, and I'd like to see ACDC a second time. Mm. Don't say anything about them. I've had two (laughs) devastating blows for one episode. At least save it till next week. It certainly looks like life is cheap in cannon fodder. Got your small band of hardened heroes to take out enemy troops, steal their vehicles, and do as much damage as you can. Lose some troops, and there's plenty more to replace them. Cannon fodder is a very original blood and guts war game. You control an elite band of troops as you guide them through jungles looking for the enemy, and when you find them, you just shoot them to pieces. The animation is absolutely brilliant. The graphics are quite small, but they're very detailed. When you cut somebody in half a machine gun, blood spurts all over the place, the little body writhes really attractively in the mud. There's a bit of strategy involved, but not enough to bog you down. 
It's fairly straightforward shooting my pitch and it is really fantastic. Well, into the review zone, we've got with a big old motley crew, including Dave Perry of Mega Power, Jeremy Doldry, games expert, Frank O'Connor from Super Action, Brad Burton over the edge, Steve Merritt from Megatech, and up first, it's a bit of a stone cold classic, this one, cannon fodder on the Amiga. Sensible software does it again. Didn't it just? This came out for the Amiga, which is the version we see reviewed here. It also appeared for the burgeoning PC market, the Atari ST, the Archimedes got a port of this. Craig, you don't hear that very often. It got ported to the SNES, the Mega Drive, the 3DO. Guess what else, Luke? Was it the Atari Jaguar? And it got released. <laughs> but the game is a military-themed shooting game with squad-based tactics where the player directs troops through numerous missions, battling enemy infantry, vehicles and installations, Developed by Sensible Software, it was called Cannon Fodder right from an early point in its development and came on the back of such games as WizKid, Megalomania and Sensible Soccer. It was developed by six people. That is the, the bedroom programmers that you, you hear of in the, the, the British computing scene is, you know, this very, very small team making these awesome games. And this game actually owes its origins to Megalomania. The mind destroyed! Because in Megalomania, you can send squads on missions. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to make more of that. They wanted it to have more player input. And that gave birth to what became Cannon Fodder. There were over 700 different soldiers in the game because they were Cannon Fodder and there were a lot of them to go through. Every single one was individually named. And on the screen between levels, you actually get to see the aftermath of your missions because they will show the gravestones and the gravestones will increase in size and splendor depending on what rank they obtain. And despite it being a very bloody game and the reviewers here loving it, this was not a pro-war game. The whole basis behind the game and the reason why they show you those graves between levels is they wanted you to realize those characters are dead. They're not respawning. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, I think that message is quite clear from playing the game that these lads dying is not a good thing. They said they wanted to make gamers realize just how senseless war is. However, satire is a funny old thing. And much like with Robocop and Starship Troopers and basically most anything Paul Verhoeven has ever done, mm -hmm. the satire is missed by a large amount of people including the reviewers, who loved the game. They gave it strong reviews, but they didn't quite get that it was meant to be anti-war. Also, the game courted controversy for its use of a poppy, and the Daily Star decided to start in on them. Oh dear. They got quotes from the Royal British Legion, from MPs, who called the game offensive to millions. They called it monstrous and very unfortunate. Virgin Media defended the use of the poppy as an anti-war statement, which the Daily Star dismissed as publicity writer's hypocrisy. Which is a fucking pot calling the kettle black there, isn't it? Friggin' hell. Look at these a, a sort of attention-grabbing bullshit. That's basically what you're after. Stuart Campbell, the editor of Amiga Power, weighed in when the magazine was meant to use the poppy on a cover where they reviewed the game, but they kind of backed off a bit on that because of the pressure from the Daily Star and all that stuff. Stuart Campbell didn't help matters by in his editorial saying, old soldiers, I wish they were all dead. <sighs> the publishers apologised, but Campbell said, I'm entitled to my opinion. He doubled down on that one. <laughs> that is a bold strategy, Carl. We'll see if it pays off. However, the old adage of there's no such thing as bad publicity, the game sold loads. 
And regardless of whether you see it as an anti-war or a pro-war message or how you perceive the satire or the humour, it's an astounding game. Uh, it's so much fun. It's interesting as well that you said that there was a lot of sort of focus on the, the blood and guts aspect of it, because that's what a lot of this review feels like. You know, that's what Dave Perry talks about. You know, it's an original blood and guts game. You find the enemies, you shoot them into loads of pieces. Jeremy Daltrey is just like, you know, the graphics are small, but they're really detailed. The blood's great. They are really sort of focused on this, this bloodthirsty aspect. It's a bit like how you remember we did Mortal Kombat and Paul Anderson said like, oh, people weren't that really interested in the in the blood or the fatalities or anything like that. And then you go back and you watch these shows and you read the magazines. No, that is what a lot of people were really into. Part of me wonders if what we know of how the review process worked would have also influenced these reviews, because I imagine the growing graveyard between levels as you lose more and more soldiers. If you've only got an hour to review it, you probably wouldn't get the full impact of that. And also, you probably wouldn't get the full impact of that in a room with four or five other journalists all smoking, eating pasties and whatever. Yeah, totally. But they do love that game. 90%. Very respectable yeah. score. Also nice to see the Amiga get a, a feature in on the show because it doesn't get doesn't come up a lot the Amiga these days. You've played Top Gear, now here comes Top Gear 2. Fast two-player racing action set over day and night tracks in all weather conditions and with more competition than you can handle. But does the sequel match the original? For me, Top Gear 2 is just a run-of-the-mill racing game. The behind-the-car view, the screaming around the corners, the introduction of nitros. It's, I've seen it all before. It's a great game, but a variety of tracks is enormous. You can race during the night, during rainstorms, there's even ice on the tracks. It looks fabulous, super smooth scrolling, hot two-player action. You couldn't ask for more in a racing game. Up next, we've got Top Gear 2 on the Super Nintendo, which gets a very mixed bag of comments here. You know, Dave Perry is really down on the game. It's a run-of-a-mill racing game. You've seen it all before. But then you go over to JD and Frank, who really like it. JD said, you know, talking about the variety. And then Frank says, you can't ask for more of a racing game. So is this just Dave Perry is not a fan of this style of racing game? And he's probably more into, say, your Super Mario Karts. It could be a bit of both. But he is right saying you've seen it all before, or at least you've seen some of it before, because this is a gremlin game and they did reuse technology and just out and out graphics from the Lotus trilogy. Yeah, I was going to say, it looks so similar to Lotus, which we had back in series two. Whereas if you didn't attach a name to this and you put it up on screen, you'd probably struggle to differentiate it between a lot of the games that Gremlin did in this style. And not just Gremlin, but you know, a lot of games developers when they were making these sorts of driving games. Things I will say in its favour, while it may have reused elements like, as you say, a lot of people did do, We've got weather systems, we've got damage, we've got fatigue to the cars. We have 64 tracks. Pretty good. Over 16 countries, because it is a world tour where you start in Australia and New Zealand and end in the USA. I'm just going to be flat out with you here, Ash. I've been trying to think of a way to get Skitchen into this conversation, but I haven't quite managed it. Skitchen! Uh, I, was, I was thinking of damage. I was like, yeah, it's a bit like Skitchen, that, but you know, I, it, I'm, I'm going to be too lazy. I'm just going to say Skitchen's great. I appreciate your shallow transparency. <laughs> but during the game, you win money in the races, you use the money to upgrade the cars. It's a bit like Skitchen. <laughs> there we go, there we go. It's a bit like Skitching in that it's not. Skitchen! And you can change the colour of your car, much like you can with your skates in Skitchen. You can, yeah. 
Can you change the gearbox of the skates in Skitchin? Uh, no, not that one, though. No, I don't think so. Anyway, I didn't get that far into it. Maybe, maybe later on you get some Nitro stuff in there. But as you say, Dave's down on it. Frank and Jeremy are up on it. 81%. As we've said, at that point, that's not a bad score. It's not bad, man. Like, you wouldn't be pissed off if you got it for Christmas. No, 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 especially if you're a racing fan as well. Join in a battle of strength and wits on the planet Arrakis in June 2. Pick your allies carefully and construct your headquarters. Beat off the enemy attacks and mine more spice than your rivals to gain control of the planet. June 2's got more spice in it than a local curry house. It's got nice graphics, nice sound, lots of violence, lots of guns, lots of big guns. Anything that seems to be missing is good old Sting, perhaps he's saving a rainforest or something. Lasting appeal is guaranteed as this game is massive and it's incredibly playable and I normally hate this sort of game. It's good for arcade fans, it's good for strategy fans, it's a great, great game. However, taking home all the prizes today on the Mega Drive, it's Dune 2, the battle for Arrakis. This is a big old strategy-based game. Doesn't feel like it's a home on the Mega Drive. This feels like it should be on the Amiga or the PC, which I maybe it has got ports for, I don't know. But this gets some cracking reviews. Now, we talked about the first Dune back in Season 2? Series 1. I can't believe it was back in Series 1. Wow. I know. Yeah, yeah. And essentially, one of the most well-received bits of Dune 1 was the real-time strategy elements, and we talked about it then, and we can talk about it again here, but essentially, this is when Westwood went, hang on, have we mm -hmm. got the license to print money here? Oh, yeah. And they really have, because you know what? After June 2, they tell that license to Fukovsky. That's money they don't need to be spending. And boom, Command and Conquer. There we go. Sexy times. <laughs> that is a game that could not be considered anti-war. That is a game that goes, you are a general. War, it's fantastic. Yeah, make sure you don't lose. But in the game itself, you take the role of the commander of one of three interplanetary houses. And the basic strategy in the game is harvest spice, defend your vehicles, build a base, build units, get credits, conquer the galaxy. Kind of. Yeah, I was going to say, take a drop houses, something, 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 spices, something, something, win. Giant sandworms. And the like, of course, yeah. But whilst this was the Mega Drive version, the PC version came out back in 1992, and fair credits to them for actually getting it to work well on the Mega Drive, because... We talked about this before, mouse games on consoles, it doesn't always go well. But this was the later port which came to the Mega Drive and also the Amiga. And while the Amiga version is pretty much identical to the PC version, albeit with less detailed graphics and with more frequent disk swapping, the Mega Drive version did things a lot more differently. It had different building and unit graphics. It had a menuless user interface. It was a much bigger screen. It played up to the fact that this was being played on a television. It also had no save game feature. So if you won a level, Ooh. you had to... No, no, you had a passcode. You had a passcode. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say. But they did take several elements from this Mega Drive port, including having a context-sensitive cursor, some of the icons, and the way they handled music, and they used that in the basis for Command & Conquer. So this is not just an important game, this is an important version. Indeed it is. But this review, I haven't brought this up in previous episodes, but Brad Burton is my new favourite member of the Games Master team when it comes to reviews. He had a line a couple of weeks ago where he just said a game was tasty, and I was like, oh, he's great, I do love him. And then here, it's got more spice than a local curios. Lords of violence, lords of guns, lords of big guns. That's basically his review of it. Guns, violence, big guns. 
And it's so nice that uh, your impression can join us on this episode after finishing with Trouble to Mill. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. I think he's so funny. I always smile whenever his name appears on screen because, one, yeah, he's got some great one-liners, but also I just love the name Brad Burton. I keep thinking he's going to ask for a Jill sandwich. <laughs> Exactly the same. Jill sandwich. The other thing about this review that I really liked is the line we get from Steve Merritt, which is, you know, I, I said it earlier at the top of this show when we were talking about Once Upon a Forest. You know, it was the style at the time because we got it with there, we've got it with Fern Gully. Um, there's a line in Con Air when Cole Meany says he's he's off saving the rainforest or recycling his sandals or some. Sh-. There was just this big thing in the '90s of celebrities being activists and caring about the environment and that was something that you could make fun of because they're being hippies or something and of course the target here is sting who was very much a campaigner for the rainforest very much an advocate of tantric sex and a former member of the band the police luke do i want to ask what your opinions on the police are or am I going to have to get on a train? No, because if, if you just tell me the police, the first thing I hear is Alan Partridge going, That was Roxanne by the police, or as they're now known, Sting. Yeah, 92% for Dune 2. Cracking little score that. I've never played it, but I did enjoy the Command & Conquer games back in the day. So this may be one that I seek out uh, and play a bit of. I'd be really curious to see, particularly as it's, you know, it's a precursor to the CNC series. It is worth checking out, and also, if you ever find yourself in a position where you can attempt some PC or Mac gaming, definitely check out the Command & Conquer Remastered pack that came out, because they didn't fuck it. Mm, they did it that's properly. Cool. Oh, man, because I played, I played the shit out of Red Alert. I really want to see Command & Conquer Remastered now on the Xbox, purely because, one, I imagine it would look great on a 40-plus-inch television, <laughs> and two... The Xbox supports keyboard and mouse just plainly as long as the game supports it. So immediately the issues of trying to control the game with a joypad, they're gone. Out the window. Plus, you know, playing in a living room, it gives you a lot more space. Space! Hold on to your handsets and get ready for the ultimate computer carnival, Games Master Live. And this year, the Festival of Fingertip Fireplay will be brought to you from the Future Entertainment Show at Olympia from the 11th to the 14th of November. We'll be holding four live shows a day at the Games Master stage where you, the audience, can join in the challenges and have a chance to win one of our fabulous prizes. You can meet me and the Games Master, and on Thursday, there'll be a special celebrity challenge which will be transmitted live on that evening show. And if that's not enough for you, you'll be able to shoot it out with the robots in the laser full spaceship, completely lose your head in the virtual reality, or leap into the world of 3D graphics. The show will be simply bursting with all your fave arcade adventures, plus, of course, all the freshest games. this and more at the Games Master Live Future Entertainment Show Grand Hall Olympia from the 11th to the 14th of November. Tickets are available by calling this number 051 356 5085 now. A festival of fingertip fireplay is upon us, Ash. Games Master Live 1993, although it's not quite the same as Games Master Live 92 was. This is now what it appears to be part of the Future Entertainment Show, right? Yeah, it's kind of like going, oh yeah, I'm I'm having my birthday party and you turn up and it's actually someone having a mini gathering in someone else's party. Yeah, it seems a little bit like Games Master Live 92, which we did a full episode on, you can go back to the archives to find that. That was its own big event. 
this year it is taking place at another event. Although it does have its own dedicated hall at the Future Entertainment Show. So it's not like a case of, oh, well, we've got this big hall and over here in one corner, there's a stage yeah. with Dexter Fletcher and some set dressing. It's more like we've taken over this entire venue. These halls are the Future Entertainment Show. There's the bar. There's Games Master Live, which I'll be honest, given how big and occasionally empty games master 92 felt because i think i commented on it that there was sometimes where did, it yeah. felt like it was a bit empty like just in the content for the space i'd much rather have a smaller hall that's more densely packed yeah oh absolutely yeah totally and definitely for this year it's going across four days and a portion of it is going to feature on games master itself the actual show in a couple of weeks time i think it's episode 10 yeah apparently going out live mm. that's that's exciting because you know what? No one can be protected by editing at that point. No, I think that's also where we get our on-screen debut of a uh, friend of the show, Rick Henderson. That'll be something to look forward to. We probably won't do a full episode on Games Master Live 93 like we did for 92. But if you do have some stories, if you did go to 93, please do get in touch. Uh, get us, hit us up on email, hit us up on Twitter. Let us know what your memories of that time were. If you can send us some MP3s, we'll try and feature those in the show as well. Yeah, we're not going to give it its own individual episode, but appropriately, given what they're doing, we're kind of piggyback it onto <laughs> yeah. the normal episode. I mean, I got massively excited over this feature anyway, because at the end, they talked about all the great new games that are coming up, and it showed a Sonic Spinball and Aladdin. And I'm like, oh, yes, they're, they're here. They're finally here. I did say I was going to use this podcast as my platform, finally, for someone to come forward and defend Sonic Spinball. Is it you that's going to defend Sonic Spinball? I'm going to try my damnedest because it's a game but i bloody love it anyway that's enough of that we've got a celebrity challenge what are we playing games master i'm just in the mood for some sport so our next game is striker the snes is the console football is the game <clears throat> sorry i'm i'm getting a little carried away it's all about getting the ball in the back of the net and i want a good clean a positive game the reputation of the academy is at stake that's my team talk over, so get out there and give it all you've got. I feel like this third version of Games Master is way more into his football than the previous versions of Games Master have been. Games Master has always enjoyed sport. He's always told us this. He likes football in particular. But this version of Games Master, like, he does football chants. He seems way more into this sport. No, it amazes me that you don't like Doctor Who because you are essentially talking about different regenerations of the same character. <laughs> But yeah, he tries to start up a Chelsea chant. Yeah. Of blue is the colour. And that, exactly. that just threw me off because I'm also thinking, I just didn't peg him as a Chelsea fan. No, we saw this like, you know, back in episode two or whatever it was, when you were going, England, England, England. He proper loves it. I'm, I'm really enjoying this era. Oh, I just figured that was jingoism against the Scottish. <laughs> yeah, it could be, who knows. Anyway, it's all about getting the ball in the back of the net. The reputation of the Academy is at stake here. This may be the biggest stakes we've had in any of the Games Master Challenges. Wait, no. What about Wolf and his girlfriend? That was bigger stakes than this. That was ah, a human life. I meant just the Academy, though. I mean, Series 3, this is the biggest stakes we've had thus far. But you're right, like, human life is way more valuable than the Games Master Academy as an entity. Especially because, you know, Luke, it's not real. Okay, so playing striker, one of the stars of these Enders, Sean Maguire, and his opponent, Steve Cox from Battersea. Let's go, man! All right, Sean, uh, the cast of East Enders, they like to play the odd game, don't oh, they? Oh, yeah, they love it. They're, they're real fans. They are. Yeah, they And you're a bit of a champ. Well, you know. 
dabble a bit now and then. <laughs> You're quite modest about yeah, it. Yeah. Steve, are you a big EastEnders fan? No way. No. No? <laughs> You're not? No. Bit of a grudge match then tonight? Yeah. Right, okay, Steve. You've been practicing, haven't you? Yeah, we've had a few. Who's been winning? Oh, Steve. Steve's been Steve's winning. Steve's been winning. All right, then we'll just a big plan to win at the end. Mm. Well, you're going to get in there and sting him. Good stuff, man. Uh, you chose your teams. Yes, I'm Republic of Ireland and um, I'm playing England. Speaking of not real, Sean Maguire from EastEnders is the guest on this show, along with Steve Cox from Battersea. Uh, you know, Dexter Fletcher is really good at getting the crowd out up because he literally introduced them and then shouts, "Let's get mad!" I'm wondering if this is like Ron Burgundy just reading everything that's on the auto queue. And actually, what Dex had on his auto queue was get excited and so he's like ah, <laughs> get excited <laughs> anyway sean tells us that the cast of eastenders play lots of games but he's a champ he's a bit modest about it though but then they go to steve and they're like hey steve do you watch eastenders he goes nope ah so he was also from a cory household yeah well we were texting the other day about whether we would do a christmas bonus of a um uh, soap opera and you suggested a, a eastenders episode and you're like, it's this, this, and this. And I was like, honestly, mate, I've absolutely no idea what you're talking about. We were a Cory household. A Cory household and nothing else. No, nope. I mean, Brook, Brookside on occasion, but it was 100% Coronation Street, not even Emmerdale. I don't know. I think we were more a Cory household, but my mum stopped watching it when I was very young. Like, mm. she, I remember my mum doing the ironing in front of a soap opera, and I'm more confident it was Cory than it was EastEnders. Now we were there like through all the Deirdre Barlow going into prison, free Deirdre and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the teenage pregnancy, the gay kiss when that was a uh, headline news. Yeah, we were there for a lot of Corey's big moments in the 90s. But this feels an appropriate game for Sean Maguire to play because in EastEnders, the character he played was also a player for Walford FC, the EastEnders amateur football team. Oh, that is nice. That's a nice little connection there. I'm surprised they didn't bring that up in the sort of the preamble. I mean, there is a good chance they didn't bring it up too much because he may have already announced his departure because he did leave the EastEnders in 1994. But if we go back a bit further, he got his start in both Grange Hill, much like previous Games Master and EastEnders alumni Todd Carsey, and as a seven-year-old child appeared in Monty Python's Meaning of Life during the Every Sperm is Sacred musical number. Did he really? Which I just love. I'm thinking that's such a way to get a start in your career. <laughs> I was always amazed they got kids to actually sing the lyrics to that because whenever a kid yeah. swears, it's often looped or made up of kind of different syllables. But nope, those kids <laughs> were singing songs about sex. <laughs> but after he was done in EastEnders, he then went on to the BBC series Dangerfield playing Marty Dangerfield, so of the title. I don't know anything about Dangerfield. I'm going to assume he was either the lead or the son of the lead, maybe. The least popular Dangerfield I've ever heard of anyway. So certainly no Rodney. You think you've got a Rod? You should try looking in a mirror. But after he was done in acting, he also pursued a career in music. He released his self-titled debut album in 1994, the album Spirit in 1996, and in 1998, a Greatest Hits compilation. <laughs> oh that's amazing that's like goldie looking chain releasing their first album called greatest hits i doubt it was with that level of irony either no exactly but his acting career did take off in america because he had a number one at the u.s box office in 2008 
with Meet the Spartans. No way. It made number one in the United States, along with being panned by critics and voted the second worst film by the Times newspaper. That's so weird. I was literally listening to a podcast this morning that was talking about Meet the Spartans. I'm guessing not favourably. Oh, no, absolutely not. No, they were just talking about how it was interesting because like the lads that did those movies, they were touted to be the next Zuckers. Like they thought like everyone thought these guys are going to be the next big thing in spoof comedy. And it went to sh- for them so, so quickly. He is still acting, though, and can be seen most recently in Once Upon a Time. Is this the Disney one? No, it's ABC's one where it's kind of a riff on um, Fables and the one where you've got all the fictional characters kind of oh. pulling together. He plays Robin Hood. He's actually the second actor to play Robin Hood. He took over from Tom Ellis. And right. he was a recurring character for two seasons. He was promoted to a series regular in 2015. And then in season six, he was killed. Ah, oh, can I kill Robin Hood? But then came back as an alternative reality version of Robin Hood. Because... I mean, this sounds rad. This show sounds amazing. Probably isn't. I don't know. I know, I know. Oh, no, dude, but that's kind of why I want to watch it. Because it sounds like it's proper naff. Well, you know, I'm sure it's out there on a Netflix, an Amazon Prime, or, I don't know, Pluto TV or something. Right, in the commentary box with me today, I've got Tim Boone of NMS Magazine. Hi, Dick. All right, Tim? Not bad. So, Strike Guys, it's a game of two hours, really, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a game and a half as well. This is soccer to the max. Absolutely brilliant. We're brilliant. playing England versus Ireland. Good Great stuff. thing about this game is very fast. Loads yeah. of moves. You can actually banana kick the ball, go for goal, whatever you want. Okay. Now, England are playing from the top down, and they're in white, and Ireland are playing in green from the bottom up. Clever money is on England. Get your money on now. We've got Tim Boone from NMS in the commentary booth who calls this game, and I quote, soccer to the max. Radical, man. Radical. (laughs) Now, he says that this game is very, very fast, and bloody hell, he is not lying. These are, this is Bambi on ice levels of skidding around. This is the speed of sensible soccer, but with the training wheels off. This is almost like what happens if you put the turbo mode from Street Fighter 2 Turbo into sensible soccer it just yeah clips along at a stupid rate almost too fast i mean don't get me wrong the challenge is fast and frantic but i can't help but think a slightly slower game might have resulted in a better challenge i don't think it's bad i just think a bit slower game would have let us see a bit more tactics well i mean i think it's worth noting that later on in this series we get the first annual games master football tournaments and it's on fifa international soccer that's how close we are to fifa being out which is a much much slower game but you know what game stood the test of time do you know what game was an absolutely massive smash hit the one that wasn't speed and and sliding around everything was the one that was more slow methodical and actually i would argue probably more fun to play Although there is always the spectre of sensible soccer, which was definitely faster and more arcadey than FIFA. Yeah, yeah, as a sports simulator, because I think that's that's probably the problem here is it, it's trying to be a sports simulator as opposed to an arcade style game, which is what sensible soccer was going for. But England are playing from the top down and Tim Boone says the clever money is on England. I tell you what, that's not a sentence often uttered. But I think even as this game starts, you can see that Steve is going to win this. Like, Sean's not bad at the game or anything, but every time he gets possession, Steve is just taking it off of him. And despite Tim's best pleas of pass the ball, 
you have to pass the ball. He gets it to one player and he will just storm down the pitch and have a crack at goal. He misses a lot. The first half of this ends up as nil-nil, but it is all Steve. This is so much school playing field football where the concept of passing does not occur to most of the kids playing. They're like, I've got the ball. I'm going to be Roy of the Rovers. I'm going to run down the pitch and wallop it. And maybe it will go in and I will be a hero. But usually what happens is the same kid keeps doing that. The other kids will get pissed off and go and play in the sandpit. Yeah, pretty much. Join us off for the break to see Sean Maguire play Steve Cox at striker. Stay right there. He's under the fence. He's past the dogs. Hope the guards. They didn't see him. He's made it! I got him. Crunchy nut cornflakes, crunchy golden flakes, encrusted with honey, nuts, and brown sugar. The trouble is, they taste too good. Did you get my dry cleaning? Robocop and the Ultra Police, the only cops with rapid repeat cap firing. Robocop battling the worst criminals like Headhunter and Nitro. The Ultra Police, protected by Robo Armor. In the fight for justice, nothing can stop Robocop and the Ultra Police. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Terminator, I'm back. Riding into the future war on his heavy metal cycle. Terminator zeroes in and fires. But T-1000 stands to get even. Hidden weapon Terminator deploys his secret weapon. Hasta la vista, baby. Terminator, he's back. Now there's a new way to help you give up smoking. The Nicorette Patch, available without a prescription from your pharmacist. If you're determined to quit, it'll help you beat your craving. Welcome back. 
you joined us for the second half of our celebrity challenge. We've got Sean Maguire and Steve Cox playing striker. The score's still nil-nil. We've got Sean playing in the green, and we've got Steve in white. OK, let's find out if they're ready for their second half. For back from the ad break, and they've switched ends, which shows they're actually playing a proper two-halves football game and not just pausing it, which they've done in the <laughs> past. We've had that in sports games. But England are now playing up the screen. They get the first attack. They get a couple of shots off. Ireland do make a bit of a comeback at this point. They get a couple of nice rallies against the English side, but England, they get back up the pitch and they score a really, really nice goal. This is a classic arcade football type shot that is at home here. It would be at home in sensible soccer. It was a great shot and definitely a worthy goal to win a challenge, which, spoilers, is exactly what it becomes because we get some back and forth again for the rest of the game and there's a couple of squeaky bum time close shots but no more goals it's 1-0 England win Ireland are defeated I mean Sean is way better in the second half like he he kind of is more into the game it feels like he does actually you know he gets a couple of shots on goal but it is worth noting that one goal we do get does come from the Tim Boone advice he passes the ball and that's what allows him to get the goal so Tim was shouting good advice from the off. It's just no one was particularly listening to him. Well, it's a good job you don't like EastEnders, really, because you just hammered him. Well, it wasn't so much of a hammering. Well, he beat me fair and He did beat you fair and Take it like a man. <laughs> good man. So you pleased with your results, Steve? Yep. Well, I just kept on hammering his shots, different angles. One got past the keeper. <laughs> one certainly did get past the keeper. Well, player. and in the post-match, they just talk about the fact that he hammered him, absolutely hammered him. And Sean said, yeah, you know what? He beat me fair and square. As I said, I'd have loved to seen a slightly more tactical game. But this, this challenge was tense because there mm. was a lot of back and forth and the score could have been equalised or taken ahead at any point. There was, no, there was no point after that first goal where I thought, that's it, he's just completely done for. Or that's it, yeah. it's only going to be 1-0. It got close. For both of them multiple times probably one of my favorite football challenges we've had in a good while or at least certainly oh, yeah. favorite football challenges outside of the eight player cluster that we had to, <laughs> at the beginning of the season yeah i mean i think for me this is better than the eight player one the eight player one was great for the spectacle but i think this this felt like more of an actual challenge where like people were definitely in control of what they were doing I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really, really good. I thought both guys were good. Yeah, you're right. Like there was some good tension about the challenge as well. I was a fan of this. Also, a big fan of when Steve gets his trophy. He gets a proper woo, lifts it above his head. It's fantastic stuff. He's either channeling Ric Flair or again, he's been watching his old <laughs> World Cups. He knows what it looks like when someone of English heritage actually gets the chance to raise a trophy. Come forward and let me revive your games playing careers. Who's our first case for treatment? Hello, Games Master. Can I cheat on Superplank for the SNES? Yes, in fact, you can. On the selection screen, press L, R, R, L, up, then down. A number will appear. This is your current level. You can then select any level to play on. You might be able to beat your son now after that rather dismal performance earlier on. Oh, thanks very much. Into the consultation zone and Sonia, the mum from Challenge 1, is here in the consultation zone looking for cheats on Super Pang. So if you press left, right, right, left, up, down, you can now select any level you want. And Case Master says that she was dismal earlier on in the show. She's either unaware that she's been dissed or she's just that nice because she says thank you anyway. 
I like this trend. I like that people that balls up the first challenge are now coming into the consultation zone going, I stunk. Can you help? Yeah, right? It's universe building. It's storytelling. I wish we'd seen this earlier. I think we should have seen this earlier. We should have had this since season one. Yeah, yeah. I think if the show had been a bit more like structured, a bit more put together, like in series one and into series two, maybe we probably would have had stuff like this. But I'm really glad that we're getting it now because I think it is really nice. And plus, it's less for you to film. It's less people to cast. You've already got them there. Just then throw them onto against, you know, a black bit of cloth. Look down the barrel of the lens. Can you ask this for us? We're going to put it on later in the show. Games Master, Franken 2 on the Game Boy is so big, how do I handle it? The secret to completing this game is the transporter. After collecting it from the house in the village, retrace your steps back to the chateau. Place the transporter next to the recharge machine. Now, whenever you're low on energy, you will not only transport yourself out of difficulty, but back to the machine capable of restoring your energy. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. This next one is one of my favourite consultation zone entries we've had. I, don't, I can't say if it's this. Maybe it is this series. But actually, it's, it's one of my favourite ones in a while. Because this isn't a cheat. This isn't a hint. This is a tactic. And it's on Franken 2 on the Game Boy. And basically what it boils down to is that there's a transporter that you can use. So you can transport back to sort of wherever you want. You can leave it in a place, go along your way, and then you can always transport back to it. So what they tell you to do, it's a fantastic little hint, is to leave the transporter next to your respawn point. So if you're ever in trouble, not only do you A, get out of danger, but B, you get right back to an energy refill in what looks to be this Metroid style of game where you are going to need to keep going back to find these refill tanks. This is a wonderful, wonderful little tip. It's a wonderful tip. It's a great game. It used a password-based progressive system because battery saves were still an expensive commodity at this point. There were multiple levels based across multiple floors. As you pointed out, there was a lot of back and forth. And the music were two pieces of classical music because while we may have had the fully licensed joy of rock and fucking rolling fucking racing, classical music is free, Luke. Sure is. On Day of the Tentacle on the PC, where can I find the human to enter the beauty contest? Ah, a tricky one. The only human you could possibly use is Ted. Okay, he's dead, but the judges don't mind. Ted can be found in the 70s room on the first floor. Put the roller skates on his decomposing feet, then give him a push. Register him before the contestants are taken to the judging area. Go to the room with the fireplace, and the registration badge can be obtained from the tentacle. So now you can enter the contest. Problem solved. Far out, man. And our third and final kid is stuck on Day of the Tentacle on PC. Holy hell, Day of the Tentacles arrived as well. I mean, this is great. This is why people like LucasArts games. This is why these LucasArts games have stood the test of time. Sam and Max is just uh, just slightly in our future. We're getting a re-release of Sam and Max as well, uh, coming up in actual real life timeline, because you need to get you need to win the beauty contest. So you need a human to do that, but the only human that's available is Ted. And Ted's dead. So do you know what you do? You get some roller skates. And then you put the roller skates on the dead guy. Enroll him into the beauty contest. And then he wins. It's great. It's pure LucasArts logic. But this game, Dare the Tentacle, does have another title. It's Maniac Mansion 2 Dare the Tentacle because this is the sequel. 
to Maniac Mansion, but I actually think it was a good idea just selling it most places of Dare the Tentacle. Let it stand on its oh, own yeah. two feet because you don't need to have played the first to play the second. And good lord, it looks good, right, doesn't it? That, that animation style is so, so lovely. It's aged so well, and even when they've re-released it recently with slightly shinier graphics, and of course it got voice acting, and it got it got the CD-ROM treatment, they didn't f*** with it too much. It's still the same great game. Basically, it's Day of the Tentacle. The plot follows a group of friends as they try and stop an evil purple tentacle from taking over the world. They control the trio of friends, solve puzzles, they use time travel to explore different periods in history... Yeah, this is peak LucasArts. This is LucasArts mm-hmm. having fun. Oh, yeah. they And in a period of time where I feel like LucasArts could do no wrong, particularly in their point-and-click division, but man, they just could not do any wrong. They were just firing on all cylinders every single time they released something. It was a banger of a game. But I mentioned the fact that there was a CD-ROM version. This was the first LucasArts game to have voice acting because originally it was just meant to be floppy disks. They realised they weren't going to make it for the original release period, which was Christmas 1992. So with the fact that the CD-ROM user base was growing, the fact they weren't going to meet their original deadline, they took the decision to add voice acting. And it immediately set a high bar for this kind of game with that kind of voice acting. And it's not a bar that will be surpassed for some years. And to be honest, I don't think it would ever be considered truly surpassed. It was just leveled with for a good long time. But Mm -hmm. I love point and click adventures. And while some consider it heresy for certain games, the thing I love more than point and click adventures is point and click adventures with well voiced dialogue. I love the Star Trek games where they got the original cast in to provide the voices. I love the Monkey Island games with a voice cast the Discworld games with Eric Idle as Rincewind, all that stuff. Beautiful stuff. Wonderful. Love it. Can't get enough of it. And we thought Tim Boone was going to be the most radical man on this show when he said that Stryker was soccer to the max. But this lad leaves here going, far out, man. He's gnarly. He's- <laughs> he isn't he just. You had your thumb. I'm off for a cup of tea. Marisha! But also, she may be gone off screen, but Games Master is not done with Auntie Marisha as he calls on her for a cup of tea as the consultation zone draws to an end. But he's not really going to have much time to enjoy this cup of tea because he's got to announce the next challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? Yes, even I'm a little excited about the final challenge tonight. The game is Robocop versus Terminator on the Mega Drive, a violent and bloody battle between two movie legends. Our brave challenger must steer Robocop through a level trawling with the evil minions of the Terminator in one minute or less. Let's see some good old-fashioned carnage. (laughs) All for the sake of law and order, of course. Well, this is a bit special, isn't it? It's an exclusive for Games Master. Even, like, Games Master himself is excited about having this. We had it reviewed a couple of episodes ago. And I'm not surprised that Games Master's excited because you know what? He's probably related to at least one of these buggers. <laughs> Disappointed it's not Borgnine versus Brimley. I think that's a video game that should happen. Maybe we can get the guys behind Elfmania to take a run at it. <laughs> no, instead it's Robocop versus Terminator, a game that when I first saw this as a title, it kind of blew my tiny little mind. Bear in mind, I'd point out, I didn't play this when it came out wasn't aware of it when it came out, aside from probably seeing it here, or, you know, being aware of what Robocop or Terminator was, or was 7. 
but I was obsessed with the Terminator. I've talked about this um, in previous episodes on this show. Actually, it was back in episode one of this show, my obsession I had with the Terminator as a teenager. So like, discovering that there was this game, or rediscovering there's this game, and it's Robocop versus Terminator. Oh, man, I played this so, so much. I think I mentioned it during the review that I played this on stream. It is a Nails game, but it oh, is a hard. fun game. It's a gorgeous-looking game, and... I thought they were going to get notes about Mortal Kombat. Nothing <laughs> compared to this game, because Mortal Kombat, you get some blood and maybe one death per fight. This mm-hmm. game, everyone's dying. And they're being oh, referred yeah. to as minions of the Terminator, which I think is wrong. 100% wrong. They're just the baddies that are walking around Detroit. They're just street thugs. These aren't the minions of the Terminator. Dead or alive, you're going with him. Chances are it's going to be dead. Oh, yeah. And if you have not seen this game in action, but you have seen Robocop, you know that bit in Robocop when the lad gets hit by a truck and he just basically explodes into a million different pieces? That is every single death animation in this game. If you shoot someone, they just explode into this massive pile of blood and guts. Every single one of these gang members has a grenade up his ass because as soon as Robocop shoots them, that pin comes out and boom, blood and guts everywhere. You, I've been, I'm kind of surprised that this didn't have more controversy surrounding it. Because not only is it gory as all get out, you're shooting women. I go, women are getting the exact same like punishment that the, the guys are in here. And at this sort of period of time, you know, the way that Capcom used to alter their games in the West, you as male characters were not beating up women characters. This is, it's kind of shocking to me that it's just here and it's just as it is. I'm amazed that there wasn't more controversy over this. I'm wondering if there wasn't because it was Robocop and Terminator. Mortal Kombat is an unknown at this point. It's not a brand name. It's just a game that's out there. And people are going, but we buy this game and, you know, we don't know it's got this level of blood. We don't know you can do decapitations. If there is a single chuckle out there that goes... I bought this Robocop versus Terminator game for five-year-old Timmy. I had no idea he'd be shooting drug dealers until they explode like balloons full of red paint. Because realistically, who doesn't know that Robocop and Terminator are violent in 1993? Yeah, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? God, it's fucking great, though. It's a great game. With me in the commentary box, I've got that old friendly face, Steve Carthy. Thanks, Dexter. How you doing? Right, Robocop v Terminator. Pretty awesome game. It is indeed, yes. So any tips for him to look out for Well, this? I mean, during the course of the level, there's various arrows which actually guide him towards the end of level guardian, right. which he's got to destroy to complete the challenge. Right. But I think Paul's got his work cut out for him, to be honest, because completing the level's easy enough. Yeah. But doing it in under, in under a minute is very, very yeah, hard. Yeah, it's going to be pretty tricky. I'm think, really looking it? forward to this. It's going to be hard. Okay, then. And when he points out that you should, you know, you've got arrows to follow, the game guide you on where you need to go in order to sort of get out and get to the boss but he's only got one minute to do this to get through the level and beat the boss at the end that's not you know that's not exactly a walk in the park it's a walk through the streets instead because you're robocop therefore you're not running and you're basically lucky in the sense that you've got five lives and when you die you just respawn in the area that you're in and you get invincible for a couple of seconds. So essentially what your man does here is just hold right and just continue to hold right unless he has to jump. He is not ducking for bullets. He's not moving out of the way of bullets. He is just plowing forward, dies a couple of times, but it's like, but cool, I just get back up and I'm just going to shoot you if you're in my way. And even if you're not really in my way, or even if I pass you, 
you're no longer in my way. I'm not going to turn around and shoot you. I'm just going to carry on walking and I'll just take a bullet in the back. Never mind Robocop or Terminator. This kid plays this game like he's the truck in the Steven Spielberg film Duel. He's just yeah, totally. going. He's motoring yeah, yeah. through. There is blood and gut and stilettos and tank tops everywhere. I don't think he ever stopped firing, even when he's jumping, even when he's falling. And by the by, it's Robocop. He walks slowly, but for some reason, he also falls slowly. <laughs> yeah. Certainly slower than a man made of that much metal should fall. Oh my God, this is one, a fun challenge to watch. Two, all the time. Oh no, right? It's so close. He gets to the boss and technically the boss dies with four seconds left on the clock, but takes three seconds to complete his death animation. Therefore, by the rules of the challenge, he completes this with one second left on the clock. Post-match, Dex is so excited by this, he shows him the stopwatch. Yeah, it it's really feels like the guy got to the end and because he kills that boss so, so quickly. He's got like the homing grenade thing, the homing grenade shooter. It's the bizarrest gun I've ever seen in any game because you shoot, the bullets fly out in a very, very slow movement and then follow you where if you jump, they go up. If you turn around, they start coming towards you. It's such a bizarre little gun. But he uses this to great advantage because he just finds this boss, fires off a load of shots, and the guy explodes within milliseconds of him finding him. It's such a quick boss fight that Dex and Steve Carsey don't even realize that he's got to the boss and beaten him by the time the animation has finished. That was brilliant to know you had one second left to spare. Look at that. There it was on the Game Master official stopwatch. So, good stuff. Was there any moments there when you thought you weren't going to make it? Well, when I got to the wire, I thought I wouldn't make it because yeah. if I grabbed onto that, I'd have completed it in a lot less time. Yeah, but you still managed to do it. It's so, so close. And he's like, yeah, show it at the stopwatch. He's like, 59 seconds. You were literally on the wire. Post-match, he doesn't think he was going to make it because he missed the wire. And that was where he did lose a good few seconds. He would have probably completed this with five seconds left on the clock. Still quite tight but not as tight as what we ended up with. No, absolutely not. The homing gun that you mentioned, it's a touch OP. That being said, almost every gun in this game is OP because this is not a game where you're having to do duck and cover tactics because you're taking down like a big bad and and they've got shielding. This is a game designed for you to run well, walk and gun. And people mm -hmm. get turned into dog food as you mow through them. I, I just, I can't quite get over the game, particularly because we've seen Robocop games get reviewed on this show poorly as well. And I actually played the Robocop game they talked about, Robocop 2 on the SNES, and it's proper dog food. It's a terrible, terrible game. And we've had Terminator reviewed on this show as well before, back in Series 1, Episode 1. And as much as I like that game, it is only four levels long. I can complete it in under 10 minutes. My current best time on that is eight and a half minutes. So it is so, so cool to have a good Robocop game that is also a good Terminator game. Oh, mate, I, I, I love it. Absolutely love it. And this was a fun-ass challenge as well. And by Jingo, this guy deserves his goddamn golden joystick. Well, it's this week's champion, Paul Pierce, walks away with his golden joystick tucked snugly under his arm. I'll leave you with the words of my good friend, Arnie Schwarzenegger. It's not the size of your gun, it's what you do with it. He's getting more blue, is Dex. Knob gags exist in season three, folks. <laughs> we didn't think we were going to get them, 
but decks becomes dicks. We are getting them at we we'll get them at long last. Yeah, they're not as thick and fast as they used to be, but they still pop up every now and then. Oh, they do, yeah, and they pack a wallop as well. But that is episode eight of series three. Ash, what did you make of it? I love this episode. I genuinely was beginning to get a bit worried because we'd had a couple of wobbles on the scores oh, the past yeah. couple of episodes. Last couple of episodes were really bad. Where we'd had some good games with terrible challenges or we'd had good reviews let down, but it felt very inconsistent. But this, by halfway through this episode, I was going, this this is back to what we want. And knowing that that last challenge was going to be Robocop versus Terminator. And yeah, okay, it was a football challenge for the Celebrity Challenge, but it was a fun football challenge. And it wasn't a 5-0 thrashing although they're fun in their own right. Mm -hmm. This was a nice, tightly paced episode. Maybe having an actual two-player game at the beginning or the arcade version of Pang might have been nice, but that's nitpicking, really. Yeah. Pang, solid game, solid challenge. Reviews, solid set of reviews. News about the new Games Master Live. Nice and concise and good to see the footage from 92 being put to use. Great little celebrity challenge. Great consultation zone, including the fact that we're now referring to people that failed at earlier challenges, and then ending it with more blood and guts in a minute than we got in the entire Mortal Kombat special. <laughs> yeah. This is a cracker of an episode. I was so happy with it. This is straight back up. This is 91. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, do you know what? When we first started talking about this, my thought process was, yeah, I think this is high 80s. Like That was kind of like where I was kind of sat at. But the more we talked about it and the more I reflect on the episode, the more I'm like, yeah, no, this should be at the very least a 90% episode. I thought that Robocop versus Terminator challenge was so, so fun at the end. Super Pang, your lad that won was a really good player at it. You take his mum out of it for, for a moment who wasn't that great at the game. He was really good. It does again feel like a series two episode. And I kind of get a bit of a kick from that. I miss the the team aspect or having like multiple people whittled down to two or whittled down to whatever. But I really did like this episode. Really, really did. I think I'm going to stick at 90%. I am going to bump it up into the 90 bracket because I think it very much deserves it. I'll be honest, I was getting a bit down this episode just with the constant revelations about your musical <laughs> tastes. I didn't want to just, I didn't want to really like, you know, bring you down further, but I do think that ACDC have only ever released one album and have just made the same album every single year after that. Oh, no, 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 that that's not even <laughs> controversial. ACDC have a style. If ACDC released an album that didn't sound like every ACDC album before it, there'd be cause for concern. But yeah. when they do it well, they do it well. Same with ZZ Top. ZZ Top mm -hmm. have a style. Motorhead. And Motorhead. Motorhead. Yeah, absolutely. But the nice thing is, it's consistency. You can pick up any ACDC album from their entire back catalogue and you know what you're going to get. Yeah. Even if you don't know the songs, there'll be short little three, four minute ditties. <laughs> there'll be some innuendo and there'll be at least two or three good guitar solos. Absolute bangers in there. Much like this episode. Absolute bangers. <laughs> Turned it back around. But that is going to do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You can find us on the social media channels if you want to get in touch with the show on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us feedback to feedback at underconsultation.com. Please do get in your uh, stories of Games Master Live 93, particularly if you've got any MP3 files you want to just send across your memories of the show. We'd like to hear from you. We're not doing a full episode on it, but we would like to try and get some stories in there to, to feature in the episode and try and get a full story of what 93 was like. 
Especially as I didn't go to that one, so I've got nothing to contribute. Yeah. But speaking of contributing, if you want to contribute to the under-consultation community in real time, you can do so on our Discord server, details of which can be found in the show notes and on our social media. Taking a look over there to see what's going on right now, we've had a bit of chatter about gladiators because, of course, the poll is up. Gladiators is one of the options. And Windy has posted a list of all the different iterations of gladiators from around the world where at least one is still ongoing. Wow, Finland that's impressive. still have a version of Gladiators on air at this time. The mind boggles. But it's a great group of people. We've had some fun chat over there over the past couple of weeks and more to come, I'm sure, as we get closer to Christmas. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where at the five pound level, you can get next week's episode one week early and ad free. Uh, and there's a whole host of other great stuff that you can get there, including those Patreon podcasts that we've talked about throughout this show. And at the 10 pound level, you get some extra bonus stuff. Ash, what do they get? At the £10 level, they get a mug, they get stickers, they get badges, they get retro sweeties, they get retro trading cards. At the moment, it's a 1993-94 to pack of Power Rangers trading cards. And they get a £5 discount off of our first under-consultation t-shirt. Current stock levels are running low. I've got the low stock warning on at least two sizes as of recording. Hey, and Christmas is just around the corner, so you want to get those in now. You may not get it at Christmas, but still, it's a good little present to get for yourself or a friend. And you can do that by going to underconsultation.com. Shout out to those £10 backers. Adam, Adam, Cliff, Gordon, Jamie, Matt, Misha, Nick, Phil, Rich, Robert, Sean, Simon, and William, and Zach, and Colin. Thank you all so much. You all rule, just as each and every single one of you listening to this show does. If you haven't already, please do consider giving this podcast a subscribe wherever you are listening. Give a little rating or review on Apple. We really, really appreciate it. But that is going to do us for this week. We will see you in seven days time as we get into episode nine of series three. Take care, everyone. Hasta la vista. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 